That's the problem with the way Israel is being governed right now. You use the word strategic, strategic and strategic again. There is no strategic thinking. Well, what Israel has had in the last 10 months since the return of Netanyahu is a prime minister who has only one strategy, and that is political survival. And that is only intensified now in the last few weeks with the public anger towards him over, over what has happened. He's not thinking strategically about anything but how to remain in power. His party... Likud is basically a, his own personal platform. The, most of the members have become more and more right-wing, more and more extreme. And then you have the rest of the coalition, which are far-right parties and ultra-religious parties who are focused on their own agendas. And there is no possibility in this government of strategic thinking. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. My guest today is Anshel Pfeffer. Anshel is a senior correspondent and columnist for Haaretz, as well as the Israel correspondent for The Economist. We talked about how Israeli society is processing the terrible Hamas attacks. We tried to understand what the goals of the Israeli military are going to be in the coming weeks and months, whether and how they are going to be able to ensure that Hamas no longer rules Gaza and secure a broader security infrastructure that actually keeps the country safe in the years after that. We discussed the future of Israeli politics, but also the future of diaspora Jews, how this moment is going to change European Jews and whether perhaps it might change American Jews even more strongly, whether it might lead to a kind of Europeanization of American Jews. And finally, we talked a little bit about what explains the inability of so many parts of the left to condemn Hamas's attack, to sympathize with the civilians who were killed in it. This is a depressing political moment and it was in many ways a depressing conversation, but it gave me much greater clarity about what is happening in the region, what we must fear, but also perhaps what we can hope for in the coming months and years. Anshu Pfeffer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Asha. It has now been uh, about four weeks since Hamas's attack on southern Israel since the worst murder of Jewish civilians since World War II. Um, you have been in Israel throughout this period. You're in Jerusalem right now. How are Israelis processing these events and, and how do you think this is going to change Israeli society? I think the first thing that really people need to understand about what is happening now to Israeli society is that there is a consensus on the fact that the country is at war and it's not going to be a short war. Uh, the aims of the war are, I think, agreed upon by almost all Israelis. There's, there's very little left, right, center, coalition opposition disagreement on the basic objective of this war, which is to make sure that Hamas can never ever again pose a threat to Israel from across the border. And for that to happen, Hamas's uh, military capabilities and, uh, and its government in Gaza have to, have to go. And what I think people don't understand is because people tend to see Israel in these very binary ways of Netanyahu and every, uh, against uh, the left and right and left and what people think about Palestinians and settlers against people who, who want the two states, I think people don't, haven't grasped what this has meant almost to all Israelis, what happened on October 7, and the conclusions may not be the same when it comes to a long-term solution. I think people, many people are still stuck more or less where they were on the, on the day before October 7. But in what has to happen in the next weeks and months on the ground, there's a consensus in Israel. And it's, um, it's not just about you know, where people were politically before that. It's also about... Uh, how people are, are prepared to sacrifice because 
anybody who's been to Israel in recent years know that Israel's had a, you know, has reached a level of prosperity of West, you know, Western lifestyle. For many Israelis, Israelis by and large have a good life and uh, are many of them are very cosmopolitan and very connected to the world. And I don't think uh, Western societies understand the, the concept of, of a society being prepared to go to war and to make the, those sacrifices. Because even when various Western societies were at war in, I think, the entire post-World War II era, these were wars happening far away, Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan. And also, you know, the, the, the proportion of people who were actively involved in, that, in those wars, whether it was... Uh, whether as soldiers being sent to fight or civilians but who are somehow involved in the war effort was always it was always a minority in Israel it's almost everybody it's not just because so many reservists have been called up and so many people have brothers sons uh, sisters as well I mean many women have been called up parents etc who are involved who are in uniform but so many Israeli civilians are now involved whether it's those who were impacted by the by the October 7 attack whether it was those who had to leave their homes because they leave they live in areas now under threat, both in the borders around Gaza to the south and uh, in the, on the northern border with uh, with Lebanon. There is almost a general feeling of mobilization. Almost all businesses are impacted, universities are are influenced, schools, etc. So the feeling in Israel is that Israelis are prepared now to make that sacrifice. Israelis know that for the next few months. The kind of life that they've become, they've been accustomed to in the last two decades or so, will not be be possible because the society will be at war. It will have an economic impact and it will have a personal impact. And wherever I go in Israel, Israelis have accepted that almost automatically. And I think that that's something that's very difficult for people in the West to grasp. One of the transformations that has been interesting to observe is on the segments of Israeli society but have been very critical, not just of Benjamin Netanyahu's government, but of some of Israel's policies towards Palestine for a number of years, who've been very skeptical of the settlement policies in the West Bank, and who've been critical in certain ways of Israel's treatment of Gaza as well. From my understanding, there is now a very broad consensus that Israel cannot coexist with Hamas controlling the Gaza Strip. Take us inside the thinking of people on the Israeli left who have been critical of their own government for a good number of years. Uh, How are they squaring those commitments with the horror that was perpetrated? I mean, one thing you you really have to realize about the Israeli left is that it doesn't exist. The Israeli left is a very tiny thing. When we talk about opposition, to the government, we're talking mainly about centrists, and the Israeli center is quite big. From, from you know, if you go by the votes for the centrist parties in in the last election, and, by, and certainly in the surveys right now, I mean, Benny Gantz's National Unity Party is not is by no way a left wing party. Neither is Yair Lapid's Yeshatid party, and the same goes for other opposition parties. There are also you know there's Israel Beitenu, which is basically a right wing opposition party to Netanyahu. So the i mean one of the things we have to kind of stop doing is talking about the israeli left because it does because with the exception of, of some very very small organizations it doesn't really exist and and it's 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 much more like in america where most of the democrat party is basically a centrist party i think what has defined the israeli opposition the israeli center very very slightly leaning towards the left over the last few years is not the, the Israel-Palestine issue. It's barely existed on the Israeli agenda. It's been much more about preserving or trying to preserve Israel's democratic institutions, at least within Israel, not so much about what's happening in the West Bank uh, uh, where Israel's not acting like a democracy. And the opposition to Netanyahu personally, because Netanyahu has insisted on in remaining prime minister. It was a short period in which he wasn't, but he tried to get back and he managed to get back, uh, despite being indicted for serious corruption uh, charges. So the whole the whole way in which Israeli politics has been ordered in the last few years is nothing like the way it was perhaps 10, 15, 20 years ago when the main dividing issue between the political blocs was 
on the preferred solution or even the need for a solution of, of the Israel-Palestine conflict. So now that Israel's opposition is being confronted with this, it doesn't automatically mean they need to rethink their ideas in Israel-Palestine conflict because many of them weren't even thinking about it. And as we've seen in the last few weeks, a total a shambles of a Netanyahu government in handling everything, whether it's the arguments in the war cabinet and the arguments between Netanyahu and his generals, the way Netanyahu has been has been uh, criticizing openly the generals and his proxies have been doing even even more of that in his name, and the way that they've failed on the civilian relief side of uh, of this, which is should be a huge national effort, and it's being mainly managed now by volunteers and local authorities because the government is so terrible. For, from that perspective, everything that the Israeli center or center left has been saying for the last few years is now is now being proven by the by the way the government is so ineffectual. As regards the the, the positions that the Israeli opposition had, or the parts of the Israeli opposition who were in favor of a two state solution of some kind of equitable. Uh, 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 way of creating a Palestinian state side by side with, with, with Israel. I don't think that's changed either. I think that before October 7, everyone was, everyone was quite was convinced that it wasn't something that was around the corner. Even if a new government had come into being and, and already before, the, before October 7, the polls were against Netanyahu and there was a chance of having a new government because Netanyahu's government did such a bad job already in the first nine months of its uh, of its term, and there was the whole issue around the, the, the their plans to overhaul and to eviscerate the Supreme Court, which had made many Israelis turn against them. Nobody imagined, and I think nobody nobody really had a plan of how the moment there's a new government will re-engage with the Palestinians and will within six months will have a two-state solution. I mean, let's remember, for 30 years before October 7, 2023, we've been on and off trying to solve this since the beginning of the Oslo Accords and, and it, hasn't, it hasn't really got there. So what you talk about, the way that, that they're kind of rethinking, that hasn't even begun. And everybody's still very much in the here and now. There's a war, a terrible attack on Israel took place on October 7. Israel needs to, first of all, go after the perpetrators of, the, of that attack and, and ensure that they are never, ever in a position to ever threaten Israel again. On the day after, that is when we're going to start once again arguing about, about the Israel-Palestine conflict because assuming Israel succeeds in its, in its war in Gaza against Hamas, assuming Hamas is toppled, assuming that the, its military structure is dismantled and... You, know, you can't obviously destroy Hamas because Hamas is an idea and it's, it has its own broad support in, in, uh, in the, amongst the Palestinian people. But assuming those objectives of, of dismantling the military structure and toppling them in Gaza are achieved, then Israel will be stuck with a situation which it never wanted to have that res- of responsibility for two plus million civilians living in Gaza and the question of how to make sure that Hamas doesn't come back. Even if you destroy Hamas, they can always come back again. What do you put in the in its place? And that will be the moment when, and already you're hearing the rumblings, but it seriously happened then, when finally Israelis have to once again confront the Israel-Palestine conflict and think about solutions. But surely in that sense, the two questions that you're treating as separate right now are linked, which is to say that Hamas's attack on October 6th was sadistic and gruesome. And I think any reasonable person must recognize that this gives Israel every right to respond and that no democracy would tolerate living next door to the perpetrators of such a massacre. But strategically, the question of the goals in this particular war and the achievement of some lasting, at least security infrastructure, that ensures Israel's safety in the long run, are interdependent. And so what is the concrete goal of Israel's military actions in Gaza right now? And how does that relate to a broader strategic plan for how to maintain Israel's safety. 
So that's the problem with the way Israel is being governed right now. You use the word strategic, strategic and strategic again. There is no strategic thinking. What we have, what Israel has had in the last 10 months since the return of Netanyahu is a prime minister who has only one strategy, and that is political survival, and that is only intensified now in the last few weeks with the public anger towards him over, over what has happened. He's not thinking strategically about anything but how, how to remain in power. His party, Likud, is basically a, his own personal platform. The, the, most of the members have become more and more right-wing, more and more, more and more extreme, and they have been in this crazy anger against those people who dared keep them out of power for 18 months with the previous Bennett-Lapid government. And then you have the rest of the coalition, which are far-right parties and ultra-religious parties who are focused on their own agendas. And there is no possibility in this government of strategic thinking. And and then that's another thing people, Israel, people have to understand right now about Israel. Israel still has some excellent uh, functioning parts. You know, the, the army, even though it failed terribly to predict what, to, to prevent what happened on October 7, is still working very well. And they understand that their battle plan now in Gaza, as you said, is connected to whatever is, is Israel's desired strategic outcome. But they're not being told. It's the job of the politicians to tell an army, this is what we want to reach. It's not happening. And the army is right now being forced to try and work out itself what is Israel's best strategic outcome because it's not getting that from the politicians. There are actually people in the army who have unofficially been given the task to work on that as part of the planning, as part of the war planning because it's not coming from the government. And we're talking now on Friday evening, Secretary of State Antony Blinken was just here. One of the things that he said to the to, to the Israeli government when he met them was that what are your plan you know tell tell me what your plan is and Netanyahu cannot say publicly that he is in favor of the uh, uh, the Palestinian authority retaking control of Gaza on the day after even though that is what most of the security establishment thinks is the best idea because the far right in his in his coalition will go crazy if he says that and that will jeopardize his hold in power so let me just distinguish very briefly between two questions. So is it that there is a strategic plan that can't be publicly formulated and that strategic plan is to dismantle the war infrastructure that Hamas has built, to get rid of the Hamas leadership and then to let the Palestinian Authority take over? Or is there a fight about what the outcome of the interaction in Gaza should be? And if it's the latter, what are the different options that are seriously being considered whether within the military leadership that has effectively been sort of forced to make those decisions or within the, the government that still has some amount of influence and control, presumably. So there really is no discussion, only serious discussion, on the political level because it's impossible to bridge the pragmatic strategy which, which, which is try and create the situation where the Palestinian Authority can return and the far right, who are very powerful in this government, who are openly dreaming of Israel remaining there forever and rebuilding the settlements there that Israel dismantled back in 2005 in the disengagement plan. And the gulf is so massive, and this is a government which which can't survive with, his, with the far right, and Netanyahu, whose only goal is to survive politically, that that discussion simply isn't being had in on the political level, which is where it needs to be had in, in a functioning democracy. So the army is assuming that at some point there will be a handover to another group, probably to some kind of peacekeeping force which will have to hand it, hand it over to, to the Palestinian Authority. But they're really in the dark as what the politicians are, are going to tell them to do. And now that in the government we also have Benny Gantz's party come back on, a, on a, for the emergency of the, of the war and the war cabinet and so on, the government is even more strung along this very wide range of possibilities. Some of them are, are, cra- are totally crazy about rebuilding the settlements and some of them are pragmatic. And, the, and there's no way that these views can be bridged as long as this is the government which is in power. And I know people think that, Israeli, that Israel is a country of clever people which, who know how to run things. Right now, the government, as far as any strategic thinking, 
is totally dysfunctional. If we assume for a moment the relatively limited war aims, which is to say to ensure that Hamas no longer controls the Gaza Strip and that any future leadership can't use the infrastructure that Hamas has built up over the last 18 years to attack Israel, that presumably the tunnels underneath Israel's territory are no longer usable, that the huge arsenal of, of rockets that Hamas has built cannot be deployed. What would that take? Um, how long will that take? What kind of warfare do we have to expect for that? What is the outlook if that is what the government and the military settle on as the aim? Well, for now, we're talking about a ground operation, obviously with also air components that will take a number of months, perhaps perhaps as long as a year, because we, it's almost impossible to imagine the vastness of, 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 the, of the tunnel network, of how Hamas has, has built into Gaza its, its military structure. Hamas has been, has been in control of Gaza now for over 16 years, and a huge amount of the resources which went into Gaza have been used to build tunnels, to accumulate arms and rockets. Obviously, they've had help uh, from Iran and Hezbollah with this, but a huge amount of aid money has been siphoned off. The, the, the Hamas have had a cut from from every import into Gaza. And just to go in, and first of all, they're not going to just give it up easily. There are estimates at least 30,000 Hamas fighters ready underground to, to fight and to, and, and to protect that infrastructure. So to go in and to go to place after place in the Gaza Strip, town after town, refugee camp, neighborhood, city after city, and to just destroy that, those capabilities, it's a matter of months. Now, Israel, I think, is capable of doing that, but only like I said, a months-long campaign. And the army is not, is, for, is, is not for one moment saying, well, we can do this in a couple of weeks. So they're very clear, the generals are very clear, this is, a, this is a story of months, perhaps as much as a year. And I think Israel's, Israel's ready for that. And, that. and there is on that point, I think there is an agreement, more or less, between the government and the army. There was some, I think, argument over when to start the ground, camp, the ground offensive. The army wanted to start earlier. There were also pressures from the families of the hostages, from the Americans. Netanyahu himself is somebody who always procrastinates on these kind of decisions. So it took three weeks from the Hamas attack until the ground offensive began. Now that it's happening, it's been happening for a week now, and there are entire divisions already, I think, in inside Gaza. We are in... I mean, there will be some, there will be a number of stages to, to, to this offensive. Now we're in the the really intensive phase in which they're encircled Gaza City and they're starting to close that and to, to work their way in. But there will be, assuming the, the military plan works, there'll, there'll be periods where once they've disrupted the, the command chain, once they've, they've managed to destroy some of the main headquarters, then some of the forces will come out, but they'll go in and out on raids to hit other parts of, uh, of Hamas's infrastructure, also in the south where the IDF is not operating on the ground right now. Uh, but once again, we always come back to this question mark. Okay, if you've done it, then what next? And this also influences how Israel should be doing it because you'd want to already have some kind of idea who would be part of, a, of an international peacekeeping force to come, in, to come in at some point and take over parts of Gaza and start preparing for a transition to the Palestinian Authority. That's obviously if Israel does go down that route, which is sadly not guaranteed, with it, far from being guaranteed with this government. So there's a very weird disconnect between the tactical decisions being made on the ground. And these are big tactical decisions. We're talking about, about a very wide-scale uh, operation, but there is very little strategic thinking to go along with that right now. What do you think are the strategic pitfalls here? What War aims, do you think, are the military or the government may attempt to adopt in ways that will undermine Israel's security in the long run? And of course, one question here is, you know, Israel's broader standing in opinion around the world. I think we'll come later in this conversation 
specifically to what I think has been a very shameful set of responses on the global left, certainly the global far left. But in terms of Israel maintaining public support more broadly outside of the far left in countries like the United States or in Germany or some other key allies around the world, is there a danger that what may be strategically sensible or what the army may decide is necessary for maximizing its safety in the short run is going to undermine the alliances that Israel needs to maintain in order to remain safe in the medium and long term. So one of the things that Israel is failing to communicate on both an international and a regional level is that if you were to have if we, if we were to have now a off-record conversation with senior leaders or officials of Egypt, Saudi, United Arab Emirates and most of the Arab countries and the re- uh, uh, regimes in the region and you ask them, do you want Israel to go into Gaza and exterminate Hamas? The answer would be emphatically yes. They, you know, all these governments see Hamas, with the exception of the Qataris who believe in the Hamas uh, Muslim Brotherhood credo and, and, and have been and still are Hamas's patrons. But in the Arab Sunni world, certainly on the level of the governments, if you could ask them quietly what they want to happen, yes, they all want Israel to get rid of Hamas. Hamas is one of the proxies of, of Iran. They see Hamas as, as a disruptive force. They see Hamas as proof that Iran can, can take another Sunni movement and, and bend it to their will. And they want to, they want to prevent that from happening. So from their perspective, what Israel is doing is what they want to see happening. But then they have the problem with the way it's being perceived by the wider Arab world and by their own populations. It's being seen as, and this is one of the successes of the Qataris, in helping Hamas through Qatari state television, which your listeners will know as Al Jazeera, of portraying this as something which Israel is doing to, to, to just, uh, is only doing to poor Palestinian civilians. There's not, and Hamas are, are not this terror organization, the, if Israel could find a way to communicate that, and if Israel could find a way to coordinate better with those Arab, uh, uh, and, and, most, and, and some of those Arab countries already have diplomatic relations with Israel, uh, that I think would be, would be a huge strategic advantage. And the failure to do that is, I think, one of the big pitfalls now. And that's one of the things the Americans are trying to achieve here as well. Why is it so hard? I mean, look, I, I, I have every sympathy for people who worry about civilian casualties on the Palestinian side. And obviously there are numerous civilian casualties on the Palestinian side. And as I've emphasized throughout, any innocent civilian who's killed must be mourned to the same extent and, and, and in their own right. No amount of context and no amount of just war philosophy which can justify military action, including ones that we know, including forms of military action that we know will likely claim the lives of some innocent civilians, uh, makes uh, the loss of that life any less tragic. So I, I, I have every sympathy for people who empathize deeply and genuinely with the plight of many people in Palestine for whom this war is a disaster. What I find difficult to understand about this moment, and we'll go to a broader question of this, but I'm asking sort of a narrow part of this, is how people are able to leave Hamas out of their moral equation to such a radical extent. Why are you asking Israelis for a ceasefire but not demanding that Hamas liberate the hostages, including little children, that it has taken? Why is there moral outrage at Israeli airstrikes, perhaps in, in some cases where those airstrikes aren't sufficiently targeted for understandable reasons, but nobody mentions the fact that Hamas keeps firing rockets at Israeli civilians throughout this conflict. Why is that not getting through in much of public opinion? And is there anything that Israel can do about that? It's very difficult for for observers in the West and certainly in those you know those people that you mentioned who have ignored or been blind to what Hamas has done and the need to, to to respond to that, to see this in anything but their own black and white Western ideological frameworks, rather than understanding that this is not a 
a conflict which fits into these neat definitions that the, uh, the of of western academics and uh, and and to some degree the media this is a war which is being fought also as a as a war between religions that cannot be ignored and i think that the that the moment that, that israel is in some ways a victim of its success the fact that israel is seen as being part of the western world and israelis is seen as being white which is ridiculous because most of Israelis are from Oriental or, or, or North African uh, origin. But this kind of dichotomy whereby Israel is part of the world, Israel are white, Israel are settler colonialist, etc. You've heard all those, all that, mumbo, all that academic mumbo-jumbo. And therefore, Israel is automatically the, op- the oppressor. And you kind of saw it in those, in those three or four days where the, most of the images you know, on October 7 and the two or three days after that were of Israeli victims. And you could see an entire media class in the West not really sure how, how to deal with it. I mean, how you know, there have been so many rounds of warfare in Gaza, and, and usually the pictures are, of, of dead babies are dead Palestinian babies. Suddenly you've got pictures of dead Israeli babies. It, it doesn't fit in the framework, and something doesn't fit in the framework. Instead of understanding that there's something wrong with your framework, and you have to be, a, you have to have a more nuanced and a more com- complex view of things. No, 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 no. This is something we can't deal with. And then three or four la- days later, when the Israeli airstrikes were intensifying in Gaza, then they had the pictures they were used to using, and they use it. And I think, sadly, there are things that the world find it difficult to conceive of the type of cruelty the way in which Hamas terrorists came through that fence on October 7 and went from kibbutz to kibbutz, inside the kibbutz, from house to house, and and shot in each house entire families, literally marked Jewish communities down for extinction. It's something that the world could not, at least part of the world, that's so well-meaning and and well-intentioned and enlightened part of the West... Can't can't conceive of this is something that from from their perspective happened in history. It happened in the Holocaust. It can't happen again. It certainly can't happen when we're so used to seeing the Israelis as this, these strong oppressors and the Palestinians as these victims lacking in agency, and that has I think led to a moral blindness. Now, obviously, some people connect this to anti-Semitism. I think there is a connection, that, but I, but I don't want to say that every person who is has been afflicted by this 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 moral blindness is is indeed anti-semitic but i think that people have a problem dealing with uh, uh, jews who with, with dead jews dead jews is like an idea from the holocaust and even that they have a problem dealing with but the idea that 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 the israelis are being targeted also because they're jewish and that, and they're being targeted by somebody who yes maybe in terms of firepower is weaker than israel yes israel is has many many times the firepower of hamas but the fact that this thing happened and israel cannot allow it to ever happen again is something that that, that they really can't grasp because you're stronger you're the oppressors you're the colonialists and Okay, yeah, what Hamas did was wrong, but it doesn't change the way we see things. And you know, people don't really question their uh, their concepts too much. I've argued in the pages of Persuasion and at this point in the Times of London and the Spectator and many other places that this is connected to the ideology that I've written about in, in my last book on, in the identity trap. Because what we've seen over the last decades is, a, is the rise of a set of ideological categories on the left, which allow us to fit people into neat conceptual categories, neat identity categories, and then to make how they should be treated a completely turn on the supposed moral status of that identity group. So for me, one part of this is to conceive of a world as fundamentally split into whites and people of color, in which uh, the whites are the people who are responsible for historical evil and the people of color are always seen as uh, agency-less victims who are marginalized. Parallel set of categories which is made to overlap when even when it doesn't in reality, is that between colonizers and colonized. 
that there are settler colonies that go and uh, dispossess and oppress indigenous people, and there are those who are the victims of that. Interestingly, in cases where you have new forms of imperialism that pit one white group against another, as is the case in you know Russia's attack on Ukraine, that colonial frame is never used because it doesn't fit neatly onto the other conceptual frame of whites and people of color. There's thirdly the claim that the nature of racism and more broadly of injustice always has to be structural. That it's not just that the older conception of racism as holding a set of bigoted beliefs about some outgroup is insufficient because sometimes people can suffer from structural injustices even in the absence of such explicitly bigoted beliefs, which I agree with. It's that going beyond that, the only way to understand uh, racism or other forms of oppression is structural. That F Vice magazine wrote recently, it is literally impossible to be racist against a white person. And Jews aren't really white anyway. So I'll get to it. So, so, so fourth, there's the idea then that all forms of injustice are interrelated because of the idea of intersectionality, because I might have different identities within myself. If I'm oppressed by one form of identity and liberated from that, I still might be oppressed by the other form of identity. And so in order to make me whole, we have to fight against all forms of injustice, which means that to be an activist in good standing who cares about feminism or environmentalism, you also must care about trans rights and you also must care about whatever else. And you must care about Israel-Palestine. You always have to defer to the most oppressed group in their view of what is happening. And those are the conceptual categories. Now, as you're saying, they are then applied in this incredibly simplistic way to Israel by saying Jews are all white, even for Nazis certainly didn't think that Jews were white, and most Jews in Israel today, in any case, are not Ashkenazi, they're Mizrahim, who have roots in the Middle East, and whose skin color is not in any appreciable way uh, lighter than that of Palestinians. And of course, there's Ethiopian Jews, and as well as the many people from places in South Asia that were murdered on October 7th. Secondly, you have this idea that Israel fits into the framework of settler colony, which is basically rooted in the history of the United States and Australia. Even for Jews, of course, like Palestinians, trace the origins to this part of land. And even for nearly 50% of Jews, I'm Israeli Jews who were expelled over the course of the last 60 or so years from Middle Eastern countries like Iran and Iraq and Morocco and Syria, and who literally had nowhere else to go. They did not choose to go and colonize Palestine. They found refuge in the only state in the world that would open its doors to them when they were in mortal danger. You can make the same sort of case against the morally truces idea that any form of violence against an oppressor is justified. And of course, point out that those who shout queers for Palestine or reproductive rights will turn on the fight for Palestine are simply trying to press a messy reality into a simplistic conceptual scheme in ways that will never work. You can blind yourself to the world, but you can never beat reality into submission sufficiently for that simplistic view to, to work. So anyway, I've been making that argument. I wanted to say it out loud on the podcast, but what you're making me think is that there's another thing to all of this. I know there's a very long bow here. And that's that part of it is simply an inability by people who may not have embraced this ideology, who may be much more standard old-fashioned liberals or, 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 or lefties or, or even moderate conservatives to reckon with the fact that the moral categories of some people in the world, like Islamist terror organizations such as Hamas, are radically different from ours. They, they insist on seeing the world through our conceptual terms, through the kind of moral sentiments that you're encouraged to have in a liberal democracy. And so they cannot recognize the nature of the threat from Al-Qaeda uh, 20 years ago, from ISIS six or seven years ago, or from Hamas today, because they insist on seeing them as these moderate political actors are responding to understandable grievances in keeping with the strategic objective of a two-state solution or something like that, when clearly all of that is belied by, by the nature and the statements of what Hamas is and what Hamas wants. And in that sense, I do not mean to draw parallel to the Nazis, which I think is unhelpful, but in that sense, it reminds me of George Orwell's lament 
in the 1930s that the intellectuals of his time kept underestimating Hitler because they simply could not understand that he fought in very, very different categories from, you know, a nice liberal Brit writing essays in London in 1935. Yeah, one of the frameworks uh, that is totally lacking, I think, in the West is the understanding of religious wars and the idea that a war or, a com or an ongoing conflict can be based on things which are not just this kind of dichotomy of oppressor and white against color and so on, but there are other uh, there are other things be beyond race that can that that can be at the base of a conflict. Is is it just something that they can't? Understand. And when I and I've been saying I've been saying this for years because I've covered over the years a lot of time uh, religious issues. And to me, when I look at the Israel-Palestine conflict, this has a number of aspects to it which are much more important than the racial aspect. And I don't even think there is a really racial aspect in the sense that it's hard to see Jews and Palestinians as being different races. Even they're not. There isn't a okay. The Nazis thought there was a Jewish race. There isn't such a thing as a Jewish race, really. And the 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 main motives here is a uh, and two nations who have a who have historic claims to the same to the same land, and b the fact that the, uh, some of the very strong motivations, and even though the fact that the original Zionists were not very religious and parts of the of the PLO were Marxists and so on, but ultimately there is a very strong religious uh, element to this, certainly when it comes to Hamas. And certainly when it comes to the current Israeli government. So to look at this through this framework, this, this very narrow categorization of thing, you know, of, of, of racial oppression is to look at and look at it simply through the wrong lenses. And that's why so many of the uh, of the reactions are so are so warped and so morally blind because they simply cannot see what really is happening here. And, and it's nothing to do with the fact of how much Israel is right and how much and how much Hamas and the Palestinians are wrong. It's simply about you know, what are the terms of reference for this conflict, and they simply don't exist in in much of the media and certainly in, in Western academia to to really analyze and to understand what's happening, what's been happening here for so many years. I know it's somewhat surprising to ask somebody who's currently in, in Jerusalem to speculate on this, but you know, as a Jew who has roots in Britain and who knows Europe well, how do you think this is going to affect Jewish life outside of Israel over the coming decades? Jews in the diaspora, certainly in Europe, have always been, you know, in the post-Holocaust era, have always been treated, I think, by other Jews, by Israeli Jews and by American Jews as like, Slightly weirdos, like, what are you still doing there? <laughs> you know, this is the place where, this is the continent which tried to get rid of you and, and you're still living there. And as a European, okay, I'm British, so for me it's slightly easier because Britain was, <laughs> was never uh, conquered by the Nazis and, and was never ruled by the fascists. But I still, I, I've always felt a very, very strong sense of pride as a European Jew. I think that you know, my, my, my grandparents, after the war, Uh, from my mother's side, emigrated to Italy and, and lived there for 60 years and, and, and raised their family there. And for me, with all the hit, with all the problematic history of, of Italy as being the first fascist country, to me, I can see Italy also as being a haven. And and and, and you know, and I've been to Germany and, and, and Austria and spent time with Jews, with Jewish communities there. And I don't think they needed to feel that they, they couldn't live there anymore because of what it, what had happened in the Holocaust. And I think that in many places there have been success stories of, of renewal of Jewish life, more recently in Eastern Europe as well. And even when there were a, a, a murderous attacks against Jews, you know, with Al-Qaeda and, and ISIS in the previous decade in France and Belgium and Denmark and other attacks that, that, that took place in other in other periods, I don't think there was a feeling that we can't live here because we're just, we're, not, we're regarded as second-rate citizens, we're regarded as being different. What I'm worried about now, and, this, and it's tragic because it's happening in relation to Israel, is that, there, and you know, we're still only four, only four weeks into this event and a lot of feelings of shock and trauma which will, which will be processed over time, I'm hearing a lot of people say 
this is the worst. And it was the worst. There hasn't actually been a physical attack on Jews yet in Europe. In there's been some many many nasty things said at demonstra- said in demonstrations. There's been a lot of graffiti. There's certainly been a lot of talk, a lot of terrible things on social media. But I think what has happened now is that there's a feeling, because of what we said before about about the people who you would expect to be protective of Jewish communities in such a in such a case, disregarding the the threat now and the way uh, things are being said. No, 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 it's just about Israel. It's not about the Jews here. And they and what they fail to understand is that first of all, part of the Jewish security in Europe is bound up in the existence of Israel, and we can never go and say, well, what would have happened if Israel hadn't been established? What would that have meant for Jewish life in Europe? But the fact is, is that today, 75 years after the establishment of Israel and nearly 80 years after the Holocaust, a large part of the Jewish security in Europe, and not only in Europe, I think it also has, it plays a role with, with the American Jewish community as well, is bound up with the idea that Israel is there, we, we they don't necessarily have to emigrate here, but but it's 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 sort of a... It's an insurance policy, and it's a sense of pride. And even though the majority of diaspora Jews are very critical of, uh, of the Netanyahu government, and many of them, and, and a, higher, a higher proportion of them, I think, from every poll we've ever seen, are in favor of a two-state solution than in Israel itself, that, that, that feeling, I think, is it's not universal because we see people who, who don't, we see Jews who, who are very anti-Israel, but the very broad Jewish community and even individuals who are not in the community have not just a feeling of, of solidarity with Israel, but a feeling that it's part of their sense of security. And now they're being told, no, 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 this is a terrible place, they're committing a genocide, and you really shouldn't support Israel. Yes, we're not. I mean, obviously, none of these people on the left are saying we're anti-Semites. Heaven forbid, they would never imagine in their lifetimes being anti-Semites. And we saw that with Jeremy Corbyn. He said, I don't have an anti-Semitic bone in my body and all that bullshit. It doesn't matter. This is creating a sense of deep, deep insecurity for Jews because they feel that they have to either disavow Israel or basically be seen as those who are supporting a, a, a genocide. And that's, that's a very, it's an impossible, it's an impossible choice for, for, them, for them to have. And, you know, you asked me about, about Europe, but I think in some parts of America, certainly in some of the better educated, progressive parts of America, I think some Jews are beginning to feel the same as well. Listening to your answer, I was reflecting on Europe and the United States, and I wonder whether the impact on American Jewry is actually going to be larger than the impact on European Jewry. And the reason for that is that certainly I, as somebody who's Jewish and who grew up in Germany, have never had a fully secure sense of belonging in Germany. I think Germany has actually been quite admirable in how it has responded in, in, in the last month, including some senior politicians from the Green Party who have talked movingly about this political moment. But if you are a Jew in the country that perpetrated the Holocaust, the question of how and whether you belong is one you can't ever entirely escape. And I think for different reasons in places like France and so on, a lot of Jews have felt an uncertainty of full belonging as well. So this moment may be a particular bad instance of it. It certainly is going to intensify those fears but it's not actually a break. It's a, it's a continuation, perhaps the intensification of something that was true before. I think for many Jews in the United States, this feels like a break in a different way. Uh, those are people who, even if at some abstract level, they sometimes joked, you know, is this or that development good or bad for the Jews? Or should we be concerned about this or that? I think most American Jews at a very profound level felt at home in the United States and assumed quite unquestioningly that the institutions of American life would have their back. And I think what's been striking, you know, particularly to Jews in progressive circles whose friends celebrated the Hamas attacks, but more broadly to Jews who are thinking about sending their kid to university because they're juniors or seniors in high school for, 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 for people who are members of you know, mainstream institutions and corporations. They see that 
these institutions have become incredibly sensitive to any perceived microaggression over the last 10 years. They've seen extremely strong reaction to any form of actual racism or just, you know, implicit form of bias or simply when somebody dressed themselves poorly, clearly with no ill intent, and that had very severe consequences. And now they're seeing those same institutions, the DEI departments of universities, being unwilling to condemn the worst slaughter of Jews since World War II, making excuses for students who violently confront Jewish students at universities. And I think that is leading to a profound shock. And, and I wonder whether one way, and I'm really just thinking through this right as I'm talking, but I wonder whether one way of thinking about this is, is this sort of Europeanization of American Jewry, whether American Jews are going to start feeling the way that, that European Jews have felt in the last decades for, for that reason, whether rightly or, or whether that's an over, overreaction. At the end of the day, America is not just the, the universities. And you know, I know that you focus a lot on that and you're an academic, so uh, it's important. And I certainly wouldn't like to be an American Jew with kids now at college, at least some of the colleges. But at the same time, there is also an incredible response from the Biden administration, which is, I think is so far has been handling this ex excellently. And I know that many Israelis felt two weeks ago when Joe Biden arrived here that finally there was a responsible leader in the country because we're certainly not seeing that from Israeli leadership. And um, so I think that it's much more difficult right now for Americans to, to, to American Jews to process what's happening because they're seeing on the one hand their president and their administration acting in such an admirable way. And on the other hand, and especially if these people who've, who who voted as most about two thirds of American Jews did, who voted for this for this president, and therefore also would be more aligned with those with those parts of society which are which which are closer to to the academia and to and to colleges as well. So I think for them, there's really very much a, a very strong dissonance right now, which I, which as I said, we're still we're still at the beginning of this. Is they're going to have to process it, and something similar is happening now. And now, you know, I said at the beginning that I was thinking as the Israeli left, but uh, yeah, it was obviously a slight exaggeration. But the what is the Israeli left uh, has also been in a very difficult position in the last few weeks because so many of the people that they thought were their allies in America, the friends and colleagues and. And and people who who they've been on seminars and and worked together on the same projects and so on, suddenly you expect these people to to have some sympathy for you and to just call you up and say, "Are you okay? There's a war in your country. Are you, you know, we're thinking of you. We hope you're okay." And you know, I myself have felt that towards so many people. You you know, you look through your contact list. That person didn't didn't talk to me that person didn't come and then you go and look at their social media feeds and you say hmm he's tweeted a lot of he or she tweeted a lot of pictures of dead people in, in Gaza in the last few weeks you scroll down and you get to October 7 8 9 you see huh they didn't tweet anything October 7 8 9 and you know one should never be obsessed with somebody else's Twitter feed but you you kind of see that there were people who just couldn't process what was happening on October 7, 8, 9, and were silent. And then when sort of normal service resumed in Gaza, then they kind of returned to returned to, uh, to social media. And, you know, that f makes you feel uh, that people that you liked and people that you thought you had, you had things in common with them simply can't be trusted anymore. So... You know, this is on a personal level for many Israelis on the left, uh, and I think it's uh, it's uh, it's on the same level for many many Jews living uh, living in Europe and living in the United States. And suddenly, we're looking at friends and colleagues and saying, "Why is it so difficult for you to just express the most norm, most basic human sympathy for what my relatives or I, I, my, my friends who are in Israel are going through. And the fact that right now, down the road, if we're living in London or if we're living in, in New York or Washington, there are 100,000 people marching for Palestine, but we're hearing a lot of people sh shouting there. As, the, as we saw in, in Sydney, gas the Jews, or we saw in other places, Haibar, which is, you know, which is the historic 
massacre of Jews by, by Muhammad and his followers, these things are, are not being seen by the people who, who are so quick to see every other threat and an attack on any other minority group. There's one minority group that somehow they don't treat like a minority group. And that's being felt now, I think, wherever Jews are. Anshul, returning to Israel for a final question, what are your hopes and what are your fears for what the next, perhaps not months, which certainly are going to be hard and brutal, but the next three or five or ten years might bring? Well, this has been a... It is still continuing. And everything that's happened since October 7 has been a pivotal moment in Israeli history. And it could go in, in different ways and, and, and it'll take time before we see whether it's whether, whether Israel will be able to, first of all, effectively carry out the military operations it has to carry out because there are people who, there are perpetrators and, and, and there is a similar, a similar issue happening on the northern border, the fact that Hezbollah are, are firing missiles but haven't yet invaded or tried to do what Hamas did can't change the fact that Hezbollah is basically the template on, what, on which Hamas was built. So there is now a necessity to, to try and change the security situation both in Gaza uh, and on Israel's border with Lebanon. So there's a period now in which, in which it will be mainly a military issue. And one, oh, obviously, if, if, if you live in a country at war, you want your country to prevail. You don't want your country to, to lose in, in the war. You want your country to achieve what it needs to do and to emerge stronger and to restore its deterrence against its enemies so that that's the next few months. But then there'll be really the question, where does Israel go from here? This is the end of the Netanyahu era and we, luckily we haven't spoken about him too much. I'm, I'm very grateful because almost all the interviews, people just want to talk about Bibi. Uh, so thank you for not doing that, uh, Yasha. But um, it's an end of an era because Netanyahu has been such a, a dominating figure and everybody's been so invested in him, whether his supporters or his those who oppose him, because everything's been about him. And he will be gone, whether it'll take weeks, months or years, but this is the end of his era. And then Israelis need to start asking themselves, okay, what are our main issues and how do we solve? We have... I mean, even we could have been having this conversation a month ago before October 7, and I would still have said to you, Israel is at a point in its history where it needs to work out its biggest issues. It needs to work out its questions of religion and state. What kind of a democracy is it? What role does Judaism and Orthodox Judaism have in its role? And we have a growing uh, Orthodox community. They, you know, how are they integrated into society? How does Israel, within within its own population, uh, work out its relationship with with the twenty percent of society who are non-Jews? Most many of them identify as Palestinians. And then, how does Israel work things out with the Palestinians who are living? In, on its borders or in the West Bank in Gaza and so on. These are the issues that Israel hasn't dealt with for a number of years now, partly because we've been gripped by this really stupid but sadly uh, irresistible uh, political drama all around uh, one man. Now, this man has now failed. And the, what was happening in Gaza was, very, was partly his doctrine of allowing Hamas to be in, in control there to split the Palestinian leadership. Now that you know, now that this, that this terrible, tragic, awful end of the Netanyahu era is upon us, this is this is when Israel has to ask these very difficult questions. And each of these questions, how it resolves its questions of democracy versus nationalism and religion, how it works out the the the, 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 the society which includes non-Jews, and how it lives alongside the Palestinians. Those are the key questions which will, de which will define Israel's future, but they can only seriously be dealt with when this war is over and when we've released ourselves of this terrible government. There'll still be far-right parties, there'll still be auto, there'll still be Likud, but the, 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 this angry coalition that, 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 they've, you know, that, they've, that they've built, I hope will, will, not, will not be around after Netanyahu. There'll still be right-wing governments and parties, but I think Israelis will be able to have a better conversation and, and confront these questions. And I hope the, the answers 
and the solutions will, will will be the right ones. But the big questions on Israel's, on Israel's future aren't being asked right now on the battlefield. They'll be asked in the aftermath of this war. Angela Pfeffer, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Asha. It was a pleasure to, to, to talk for an hour about these things, not in little news updates, but to talk about them in a, in, in a deeper and wider way. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.